Welcome to The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, Bolsonaro's Brazil. Brazil's new far-right government plunges the country into fascism. And social movements haven't been able to really come together in a convergence for democracy or against Bolsonaro. But this week, the signs of the open fascism has been so strong that reactions are starting to really form. We speak with Brazilian scholar and activist Diana Aguiar about the downfall of the Workers' Party and the rise of Jair Bolsonaro. Hey Justin. Hi, Justin. Hi John. Hi Nora. How are you? Ooh, Specifically well, you, because you're in America and things are happening. I'm there. in America. Yeah. yeah. The country's in flames. It is in flames. Um, yeah, we've had protests. Uh, just a small amount of protests here and there. <laughs> just kidding. This is something that was entirely predictable when you have a state that has, you know, become more and more militarized, uh, where the police are given more and more authority to. Um, commit war crimes, essentially, against primarily black communities in the U.S., put a pandemic and 40 million people out of jobs into that mix, and um, you have rebellions. And then kill a completely unarmed dude over supposedly $20. Like a suspected, not even, it wasn't even like clarified, it was a suspected $20 bill, like a forged $20 bill. And this is, you know, just the latest in a long, long string of police terrorism against black communities. Of course, we can talk about the origins of the police in the U.S. and how they grew from slave patrols. And now they are just another iteration of oppression and dehumanization and violence. When the president of Brazil looks at what's happening in your country, he says, oh, I want that, too. Yeah, sounds great. How can we have more of that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean But guys, Trump's Trump's listening to this radio show right now in a bunker <laughs> because he's hiding from black and anarchist street activists he's that are out scared. on the street in front of the White House, which no, is I don't know. I hey. think that yeah. I think that as long as the the response to this is not like a few more hours of human rights training for the officers or whatever. Like, I I think uh, if we're past that point now and and people are talking about defunding the police and uh, abolishing the police, then this will have actually advanced things a little bit over what's happened every other time that police have murdered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, we've as abolitionists, we've been saying this forever that the police forces need to be defunded, you know, dismantled, destroyed, confronted, whatever. And now it's kind of a, a mainstream sentiment. I mean, you're having today in Teen Vogue, for example, there is a, a feature story about defunding the police. And, you know, Teen, teen Vogue, teen Vogue is, is, is like super radical. Like, right guys are the vanguard <laughs> yeah. of the revolution. Exactly. Like, when did that happen? In the last Vogue five years. I mean, it, it happened when they hired uh, these incredibly smart, energetic activist, you know, young women of color to be on their high editorial board. So that makes a difference. It does make a it difference. It clearly makes a difference. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, so so we will we will give our <laughs> listeners an episode on this America in Flames. Yeah. Oh, very very soon. At least. Yeah. It doesn't appear to be going away. I think. That's no, this is just nobody. The nobody has anywhere to go. Except, <laughs> nobody even has anything. There's nothing to, be, to lose there's not anymore. Bread or circuses. Right. <laughs> there's nothing. There's absolutely right. nothing. There's just right. a lot of pearl clutching about like don't loot and don't riot right. and. and stuff right. but it's like clear that when of course looting has been the foundation of this country <laughs> i actually saw, i i saw the, the footage of the rodeo drive looting and it was some of the most civilized yeah. distribution of <laughs> adidas running shoes that i've seen yeah. in a long time people just they went in two by two socially distanced yep and came out with like a pair or two each like right. it wasn't like someone went in and just took everything like the you know, like the hedge like funds or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's like, mutual <laughs> aid. It's mutual aid. The revolution will be stylish, damn it. The revolution will be stylish. Uh, okay. Right. Well, so we're going to go from one uh, proto-fascist state to another. We're going to discuss Brazil today. Here we go to Brazil. The briefing. So we're going to go to Brazil. Brazil, just a little uh, country outline here. Fifth largest country in the world owner of massive oil reserves and custodian of the Earth's most important breathing apparatus, the Amazon rainforest, from 2002 onwards was led by the Workers' Party government, but it was really a movement, a movement of Lula da Silva, who was a poor laborer, factory worker, and who came to power and effectively transformed a neoliberal Brazil into one that bent the arc of history towards social justice in a way that I think is largely unparalleled. He won back-to-back elections, 2002 and 2006. In 2010, when Lula left power because of term limits, he had an 87% approval rating. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, was twice elected after that. About five years ago, the judiciary launched an operation called Operation Car Wash, which was a sweeping corruption investigation, a rolling corruption investigation that grew with each year. Recent documents leaked to The Intercept show that that Operation Car Wash sweeping corruption investigation morphed into an effort to destroy the Workers' Party and prevent it from running effectively in the 2018 elections. Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff were both jailed for corruption in very speedy trials, which prevented Lula from running in the election in 2018, which he was going to run in and win handily, as the numbers suggest. That gave space those jailings and corruption operations gave a platform for the rise of a fringe far-right politician, Jair Bolsonaro, who is a ex-military captain. And he is a far-right conservative with all of the hallmarks of that sort of faux populism. I mean, it's, it's called populism in the current vernacular, but it's really a particular type of, of conservatism, anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-affirmative action, anti-secularism, far-right conservatism, you know, love for Israel. He shows up with Israeli flags, a rollback of indigenous protections, alliance with the United States. Bolsonaro came to national notoriety 
in the late 1980s after the transfer to civilian rule of the government and the military, he was part of a plot to effectively return to the type of junta dictatorships that Brazil was known for from the 60s through the mid-80s. So essentially, he was convicted in the Supreme Court of attempting an operation to target military leaders within the new civilian Brazilian army and government after the fall of the dictatorship. Representing the dictatorship, representing the junta is kind of how he has made his name. And he has all those populist traits, like the vulgarity, the vulgar misogyny, the like sexual predator persona, like weaponizing sexual violence, racial violence, class violence, and doing this sort of traditional family values, quote unquote, position where you weaponize rape and misogyny while under a banner of family values. When he was elected, headlines came immediately after he was elected, such as, does sounding like a Nazi make you a Nazi? Is he more fascist than Trump? You know, people have pointed out that he uses more fascist tools than Trump does. But yeah, this whole fake news, attacking the environment, redoing trade deals, inciting violence, encouraging a type of vigilantism. He polls around 18% with women, which is pretty remarkable, in part because of the, you know, misogyny as practice. He believes that women should be paid less because they reproduce and tend to miss work from time to time. He doesn't think women should work in general. He's got that old school misogynist chic going on. We're less than 20% polling with women, I think, tells you a significant amount of what you need to know. Questions have been asked in leading liberal newspapers, such as the news in Australia, that asked, is he the world's most repulsive politician? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's an admirer of the dictators. He wants a return to that. He wants an alliance with Israel, the United States, and India. And as followers of the brief, that's virtue signaling for fascism. <sighs> there you go. How's that, guys? There's Bolsonaro in a, a little short, little short rundown of Bolsonaro. The most repulsive. You know, if you're asking, he, right? I like when they put question marks. <laughs> if, you're I like when, if you're asking, I mean, the, the spectrum is there. is interesting here. Like, I yeah, don't know. That's it's, true. It's a very it's, but subjective he, he, spectrum. He, he he holds up. He holds up. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, he's pretty repulsive. I mean, and we have to talk about like the rise in and I know Deanna gets into this too, like the rise in this like the civilian fervor toward fascism, just like we see in Trump's America. The white upper class was really upset when Lula enacted social programs that actually like built wealth in the working class and the poor. They were upset when, for example, they would go to airports and see black people there, where previously black people were not able to afford trips anywhere else. And so, you know, we have like this kind of whipping up of this racist sentiment being fed and channeled through these um, very authoritarian and fascist moves that, that Bolsonaro kind of capitalized on just as Trump has. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about this military dictatorship in this era because Brazil was ruled by a military dictatorship from 1964 to 1985. And throughout Latin America, the military dictatorship was the U.S.'s chosen weapon to destroy the left. 
the possibility that the left would come to power through armed struggle, right? As per Che Guevara's design, Castro, you know, and Che Guevara's success in Cuba and Che wanted to export that, right? But it wasn't just Che Guevara. He, he was part of a huge movement across Latin America that that was the sovereignty again, like all of these themes that come up over and over in these fascist countries that they're trying to suppress sovereignty, redistribution, the idea of countries that control their own resources. So the military, when they stood down and they said, you know, we're returning to the barracks and handing over to civilian government, they were pretty explicit. They said, you know, we resolved the communist threat, the internal threat, and now we're ready to stand down. In that period, that's when Lula and Dilma and many other members of the Workers' Party were in jail, right? They were political prisoners. And that was like, there's interesting stuff. Like the theorist of the urban guerrilla was this guy, Carlos Marighella. He wrote the Urban Guerrilla Manual. It wasn't very successful. He actually got assassinated by police. Lots of incredible stories, right? Like if you watch that documentary that uh, Diana mentions, The Edge of Democracy on Netflix, she, her parents were leftists. They lived underground and lots of people from all strata, like lots of poor people, but lots of people from the middle class and upper class. And of course, Paulo Freire, right? The famous adult educator. That's Brazil too. So like you have a fascist country, but you also have a country from which all this like left theory and practice has come over the decades. And so Bolsonaro once said that the speaking of how Lula and uh, Rousseff were political prisoners, one of his sort of fascist quotes was like, the mistake that the junta made was only torturing Rousseff and Lula and the leftists and not just killing right. them. Like if they had just killed them, we wouldn't have had a workers party. Like that's, 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 his, po that's his position. Yeah, very genocidal. But like the thing about someone like that, right? The thing about these fascists everywhere is they, they can't actually resolve any of the problems of the society. They can't solve the economic problem. And so they can't actually make those other parts of societies just disappear either. There's always this moment where people go fascist and then the problems remain unresolved. And then this fascist period has done all this damage. And then you end up having to go back <laughs> to something in a worse situation. But the Workers' Party, it starts off in one state, right? Rio Grande do Sul. And they did such a good job in a lot of ways and that, that people thought, okay, well, they, they do all these interesting things, the participatory budgets, the elements of grassroots democracy and redistribution. So people gave them a chance. The other parties were used up and corrupt. And the Workers' Party, they helped protect Venezuela from the coup. They helped in 2002. They, they did a lot of things that were powerful and they were again, like standing for the sovereignty of Brazil and the sovereignty of Latin America and like BRICS, that was a thing, right? BRICS was this Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, all these kind of middle powers that were going to create a new world order. And if you look now, the B is gone, the I is gone, the S is pretty much gone. So it's just like Russia and China kind of hanging on. Justin, talk a little bit about the way the local politics work, because they had international solidarity, but there was and and Brazilian sovereignty, but there was also a like a primacy of indigenous sovereignty within that structure. Yes. And also like the, the conservative traditional machines of politics and local politics and the economy all remained in place. And that's like a contradiction that Diana gets at. And that's also like really present in the documentary 
if you watch The Edge of Democracy, but it's so it's like there were all these people that were able to assert themselves in the Workers' Party, including Afro-Brazilians, Indigenous, the MST, right? The Landless Peasants Movement that yeah. was able to make all this progress because their whole strategy is based on occupying land and then negotiating some kind of land distribution based on their ability and power to occupy land. And if you have a favorable government at the national level, they're not going to send the police to repress you the way that Bolsonaro has been doing, right? So, yeah, like all of the land question, the agrarian question, the uh, redistribution, all of those things were making progress. But of course, there were contradictions. The fact that Lula did leave all of that establishment in place and, and tried to negotiate this kind of slow thing. It's it's kind of a lesson to me of, you know, no matter how slow you go, the elite still is going to despise you and try to get rid of you. So you might as well not go that slow. So like there are people in Latin America used to always contrast Lula and Chavez, right? Like Chavez, who was also like a pretty affable guy, but he didn't try to negotiate in that same way. He nationalized things. When the oil workers went on strike, he fired them all. He wasn't playing with kid gloves the way Lula was. In the end, when the elite kind of turned on Lula, it was they fought Lula with all the nastiest methods that Lula was never willing to use on them. And so that's like the the pink tide, you know, that's what they used to call it. Like it was not red, but it was sort of red, right? Like, and that was the end of the pink tide. Again, like the other contradiction in foreign policy that always hurt my feelings was the fact that Brazil joined the coup in Haiti and was basically the leader of the occupation of Haiti under the UN auspices. For what reason? What was their, what was they the reason? They wanted a seat. They wanted a seat on the UN Security Council. So they wanted to show that they yeah. could help keep order... In the yeah. hemisphere. It's always about the seat at it's the table. It's always about the seat at the table. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so do you want to get, uh, do you want to hear from Diana? Yeah, let's hear from Diana now. I'm here with Diana Aguiar. She's a Brazilian scholar and activist based in Brazil. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. First of all, do you feel like fascism is the right word to describe the presidency of Bolsonaro in Brazil? Definitely a fascist government. There are so many things of his background trajectory that builds into what we're living in right now. No one could really say they didn't know who Bolsonaro was before he was elected. He was for up to 30 years a federal deputy that did nothing of major importance. He was like a marginal parliamentarian and would very often complement the biggest torturer of the military dictatorship. That's his hero. And he's very much sustained by high-level officials of the military. That's one of his most important bases and moral conservatives as well. And a huge anti-corruption discourse, even though it's a lot at odds with uh, the actual corruption. What, yeah. yeah, what evidences of yeah. uh, the way he he works? It's really interesting, just in terms of like fascist propaganda, right? If I think of like fascism, so there's the military, there's the conservatism, 
I always think of fascism in terms of ultra patriotism, but seeing Bolsonaro salute the U.S. flag, march under the U.S. and Israeli flags, how does that play on the right wing in Brazil? Like usually you think of fascists as wanting to celebrate their own country's flag. Like what's the deal with the American flag? That's very weird, actually. I mean, it's really hard to put our heads around it because it's one of the things that we debate a lot when mm -hmm. there is polarization on Bolsonaro's government between the right and the left, even within like micropolitics levels. I'm not even talking about wider debates. I'm even talking like within families and communities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People would always point to that as a major like inconsistency of his discourse. Like he's talking about patriotism, like his main slogan is God above everyone and Brazil above everything. It's a very patriotic discourse. But as you and say, then America, and then America above Brazil. Exactly, right? exactly. So this has <laughs> okay. been something that is very much like talked about when people want to show the inconsistencies of peace politics. But I think it has to do a, a bit with this idea that uh, so there is this whole anti-communist propaganda going on, uh. like people. Not everyone, but some people were actually convinced <laughs> during the elections that the Workers' Party was attempting to impose communism over Brazil, even though... Lula As they had a long time. They could have done it from exactly. 2000 and... Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, it's hard to debate that because people like communism yeah. is not necessarily... Uh, for people, it doesn't necessarily mean what it should mean. Like, it can yeah. be also conflated to mean corruption oh, okay. or being like anti-family. Anti-family okay. anti, values, anti-God, so, certainly anti-atheism. Like exactly. Atheism so this, there yeah. is this whole idea that workers' parties, governments were aligning with communist forces, such as China. And for instance, Bolsonaro had a huge xenophobic propaganda when he uh, was trying to get elected. Then he changes it for pragmatic purposes after he's elected. But this is a story to tell. In any case, I think this, this whole thing about the American flag is to say we are with the capitalists, you know, uh -huh. we are with the Against capitalists. Communism. So I think it's more sense. to do with that than anything else. Like people see the U.S. as the reference for the fight against this ghost of communism. That <laughs> Right. It's okay. Insane, well, that does. It's, that's, it's how people yeah. feel. <laughs> I still kind of can't believe that Brazil went from, in 2016, a long time under the Workers' Party, the left party. They did lots of progressive things, you know. Uh, I was never happy with what they did in Haiti and a number of, uh, I'm sure there are lots of complaints about them, even on the left in Brazil. But to go from that to this and the coup that happened, it was shocking to me. And so I, I wonder if you could tell the story of how we got to this point, like the ouster of Dilma Rousseff, the Workers' Party president in 2016, and how it got to this point. I can understand that it's hard to understand because for us it is, you know. Uh, yeah. One of, the, of Brazil's major musicians, and I'm sure you've heard of Tom Jobim, one of the composers of Girl from Ipanema, he used to say, Brazil is not for beginners. And lately, <laughs> that's we've been oh, saying, that's really good. Yeah, and lately we've been saying that even for veterans, it's hard. No, <laughs> it's not for hard. veterans either. Yeah. The political landscape has changed in so many ways that sometimes it's hard for us to put together the pieces of the story. And I think there are several ways to tell it, and it results of a confluence of events and and facts. On a short note, I really like to recommend for people who want to know a bit more 
uh, this story to watch a documentary. It was nominated for the Oscars, and it's called The Edge of Democracy from filmmaker Petra Costa. It's very interesting because she really filmed a lot of these events that I'm going to be talking about to answer your question. But I think there is somehow a story that is pretty much consensual for most of the left. One of the things is the end of the commodity boom. So a lot of the Lula's politics was sustained on the coalition of forces in which different sets of political and economic forces got pieces of the growth that Brazil was having. So a lot of that growth was because of the export of commodities, especially to China, not necessarily only to China, but China was this major driving force. Well, not only for Brazil, but for Latin America in general, and I would guess also for like African countries. And for a major part of Lula's government, that was a force of economic growth and stability. And Lula really used that to share these gains with like conservative forces even, and a lot of corporate interests that gained a lot in his government. I remember talking to a Brazilian leftist about their theory of an alliance between so-called like progressive national capitalists against, I guess, imperial capital or something. That was part of their theory in a way, right? I think that's like a an idea behind what they did, but... I mean, if you really look in reality, like they were also giving major profits to banks, you know, like with high interest <laughs> right. rates. So it's it's very complex. There were several opportunities to change the correlation of forces that Lula didn't take in terms of agrarian reform. Like Brazil has one of the highest land concentrations in the, in the world, you know. The famous landless peasant movement, right? Exactly, the exactly. But then we could say he didn't, only let those same forces of always win mm-hmm. from the economic boom. No? So at the same time, he was making all these important social policies that, for instance, took Brazil out of the hunger map of the FAO. And that's not mm-hmm. minor. Yeah. And people really mm-hmm. saw their lives change in ways that they had never seen before. And they were having access to things that could be basic for a lot of people, such as a refrigerator, better TV, a car. And we could always criticize part of that in the fact of, okay, that's inclusion through consumerism and not necessarily citizenship. But still, you can't deny that for a lot of these people, that meant a huge change in the way their lives was before. That's kind of like the American model uh, in a way, right? And at the same time, there were some things, I mean, at least one thing that was very like structurally change, a structural change, which was the spread of public universities. Lula opened several campuses around the country and there are like in different small cities, universities, and that was not a reality at all. And a lot of people that would have never gone to higher education were the first in their families to go to a university, for instance. And there was all these quota policies in which like African descendant populations were also getting more access into universities, not only because there was more places because of the expansion of the university campuses, but also because they had secured spots. That is a change that is lasting, and that's something that we can feel 
even today on who is the base of the resistance to the right-wing forces in the country. So I would say this coalition-building politics that Lula led had huge standing on the boom of commodities. And when that ended, or at least decreased in terms of force, and Brazil started to go into the economic crisis with more severity, and Dilma was empowered at that time. So the situation pretty much changed in terms of what type of politics she could do. And she decided to take an approach that would, for instance, lead to losses from for banks, and at the same time, keep with the social policy. So in one sense, I think she was very progressive in what she was attempting to do in terms of holding that, but making kind of some of those more corporate forces lose a little, and they didn't accept it. So this is one thing. But at the same time, Dilma was not a specially charismatic person. She was very honorable. I'm not sure if people know her story pretty much, but she was imprisoned during dictatorship years. She was part of the resistance. She was tortured and never gave in any of the names of her comrades. She can be like highly respected for her story, but she was not really a politician. She had never been elected before being a president. She was always a bureaucrat, like a minister, you know, all this sort of more roles that are appointed, no? And she was basically Lula's candidate. And there is a lot of conversation around the fact that Lula kind of picked her and in spite of what even the Workers' Party might have wanted. At the time, also, there was this conversation that Lula was doing that because she was like a break so he could return because he could not be reelected a third time. So he would then come back later on. And he didn't want anyone competing with him. And she was like a safe choice in that sense. (laughs) So there is this whole story about Lula doing that. I mean, it's kind of anecdotal right now. We don't really know how much, but it's possible to, to say he was thinking like that. She was not a very good negotiator. So Lula did this very well, even though he comes from a progressive background and he's this, he was also trade unionist and trade unionists, I think, are very capable of negotiating with the other side. I mean, that's kind of ingrained in their DNA and she didn't have that. So when some people needed to start losing something in the midst of that crisis that Brazil was facing... She was not very good in in making the needed conversations for that to be possible. And I mean, we we could also say they would probably they would never accept it anyway, but she wasn't really trying. When there was lots to go around, Lula was able to spread it around. And then when it came time to tighten belts a little bit, Dilma wanted the rich to pay more than the poor and the rich didn't like it very much. Exactly. And she was not an organic person of the Workers' Party. She was not affiliated to the Workers' Party before she became a candidate. She was part of another party. And I think a lot of the base of the Workers' Party didn't really have a sense of of community with her. Like she's like a representative of a force that they recognize. So when the whole thing of the impeachment came about, a lot of the militants really worked against that happening. But at the same time, there was a sense that she... She wasn't theirs. They didn't fight for her like like out of personal loyalty or exactly. like belonging. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, and then, of course, there is this whole misogynistic politics that came into play at that time. Because what the right wing did was they turned her 
like her as a woman into like the target of so many attacks in in so many ways that was really hard as a feminist to watch you know and then just before that process, like I think one thing that really came into play was uh, in 2013, uh, Brazil was a stage for massive protests in the streets. I'm not sure if you yeah. became like acquainted with that, but basically it started with a protest against uh, the price of public transportation. So one way to tell that story is, okay, so there is this inclusion on of uh, poorer classes through consumerism, as I was uh, talking about before, but that people like felt that's not enough. Like they want to have more access to public services that even if you're getting to consume more, the health system is not of quality. The education system is not of quality. Like public ser- system uh, services are of transportation are not good. And then you also have to pay a lot for that. It started there, but of course, the protests became about everything, you know, like about everything that people were <laughs> right. like angry about for not being like full citizens. Like they wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms, but they would say it's not about only the 20 cents of the price of the public transportation that we want less. It's more of that. It's like the inclusion. limitations of this whole model. Exactly. And then it became yeah. about everything. Like you would see right when people <laughs> in the street calling for a military coup. It was crazy. But that's, that was minor overall in the protest. The problem is the whole narrative of that was hijacked by corporate media. Basically, they made it like this is like about the incompetence of this government and they made it all about Dilma. And that was 2013. And she was very popular by then. And then her popularity begin, began to decrease like massively. So when she was reelected in 2014, she was already reelected in a very tight race. And it was the beginning of her second term. She couldn't really govern. Like the Congress did everything for her not to govern because of what she was trying to do in the midst of the economic crisis. And even though the corporate media in the beginning hijacked the narrative of those protests, they then lost control of the narrative to this digital militia that came about and became a major force of the right wing in the country. Oh yeah, please let's let's talk about that. That's interesting to me because we also are are studying India and fascism in India, and WhatsApp has played a huge role in India starting around the same time. They were organizing kind of lynchings of Muslims, saying that they were eating meat or processing meat. Villagers would gather based on these WhatsApp messages and kill people. And then there's been no punishment or no like impunity for that. And I know that WhatsApp has also played a huge role in this, in the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Absolutely. It has, I mean, some of this politics takes place on Twitter. Like later on, they went more into Twitter also. And YouTube is also a massive playing field for them, like for the right wing. Okay. Do they call themselves the digital militia? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just, uh, well, but you never know. No, of course. <laughs> Uh, okay. there, is, there is this saying which is like spread in Brazilian media to talk about an office that stands besides Bolsonaro's office, which is called the hatred office. Like it's called informally, but it's everywhere in the media. And it's become like a nickname for this office that is led by one of his sons, who is someone that really got to study and, and be a part of these social media politics. And social media politics in Brazil is a playing field of the right wings. 
not even like right wing in general, I would say like extreme right. Even like part of the more traditional right wing politicians do not really play well with those tools. But WhatsApp, more than anything, that's the place where, because it's so, of, of its opacity, like you don't see really where, where this is going. We have tips of it because some people infiltrate in these groups and start to make studies about it. But still, there is a lot that goes on that it's hard to trace and hard to know who is being really. It's, it's very quick also, like the turnovers of changes in narratives that they make happen. But basically, it stands a lot on the polarization of Brazilian society. So a lot of these politics are around this idea of communist, anti-communist, even though, I mean, what they say is communist unnecessarily is meaning communist. Right. Because they're not out there making a detailed case. They're creating memes and images and short videos and false messages. So it's not really about like, hey, what what does communism mean? 101. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who was Lenin? What is the dictatorship of the proletariat? Like, it's probably not at that level, really. Exactly. And there is like this major use of robots and algorithms. They were like being advised by Steve Bannon also. And there is this two like main niche campaigns that they make. One is very much directed to the conservative moral politics. So like it's against LGBT rights and saying that Brazilian family moral values is under attack. It's the end of the family as we know it, and we have to fight against it. And this is very much directed to evangelical and Catholic populations, very much like lower poorer classes, and it's associated with religious fundamentalists. So this is one of the main bases for Bolsonaro. And I and I feel it's one of the bases that he really he really controls, like it's really together with him because all these evangelical leaders, there is like these ev- important evangelical leaders that are also represented in parliaments. It's an important base in parliament. And they have like TV channels and they control a lot of the narratives around it through TV, but also they are represented in the way these fake news are organized. They're a disciplined voting bloc, like they'll vote how they're told to vote. They are. And in the time of the election, these priests, the shepherds, they would tell in church they should vote for Bolsonaro. So this was an important explanation for his victory. And on the other hand, there is this whole discussion about corruption. This has to do a lot with the car wash operation that eventually had to do with also the imprisonment of Lula. So There's this whole anti-corruption discussion in Brazil that really just cares about the so-called corruption of certain parts of the political landscape, but not necessarily others. There is a lot of fake news also around that. And like there is this whole deal about Lula's sons being millionaires and things like this. So they make all, this is like the two main blocks of, of fake news that they put out there and And if you talk to people, they are really informed by those videos. And it's interesting to hear how they are convinced about things that are so obviously not true. Is there some like Keystone YouTube video or like super influencer YouTube influencers that everybody on the right watches there? There is. I won't be able to tell their names, but I've seen the other day like this statistics about there is this one person. He has more followers than all the other major influencers from the left 
and news channels from the left combined in YouTube. There is no competition. Yeah. Like, that's a field they control, definitely. Is there a left strategy for kind of going in there and trying to build up something bit by bit? Or is it kind of hopeless? I think it depends on what left you're talking about. Because the Workers' Party is somehow very, like, old politics in a sense. I mean, most of the leaders are people that have been in politics for a long time and... They try to be more in touch with these tools, but still, it's hard. I mean, you could see the narratives are very old-fashioned and don't really talk with a lot of people that are in social media. But then you have these like influencers coming about that have nothing to do with traditional politics, but that have been putting forward like progressive analysis. But then you have also like Media Ninja, which is this journalist-based group that have become kind of a coverage news very much through the internet. And they cover everything from protests to everything that is happening in Brazilian politics. And they have a, an important set of followers. I would say they are the most massive between quotes media that there is mm. in the left. But still no comparison they, to, to what the right is. Still no comparison. Okay, so let's get to Lava Jato. So 2014, they start going after Dilma hard, the rise of the right-wing social media, and then this investigation, Operation Car Wash, which ends with Lula in jail, and this Temer character briefly becoming president. We could say this is part of the coup uh, of what came uh, to be the coup as well, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, you have... Sergio Moro, who was up until a few weeks ago the Minister of Justice of Bolsonaro, and he left the government basically accusing Bolsonaro of wanting to change the head of the federal police to protect his sons of uh, criminal investigations. But long before he was the Minister of Justice of Bolsonaro, he was federal judge, initially very unknown character, but he made it his personal quest to convict Lula. And that was evident in the way the car wash investigation developed throughout time. Basically, he was the judge that was judging the prosecution. And then there was the prosecutor's office bringing forward all these accusations against Lula that he owned an apartment and that he never, that is, there is no like a document saying that Lula is the owner of that apartment to begin with. But basically, the car wash investigation was around this payment of bribes by corporations in order to get contracts with Petrobras. So it involves the Brazilian oil company and public auctions and the favoring of certain corporations in exchange for the payment of bribes. A lot of the investigation came about with these kind of whistleblower compensation policy in which people would come forward and in exchange they would have their penalty either released or significantly diminished and they didn't have to prove what they were accusing. So a lot of the accusations that eventually led to, for instance, Lula imprisonment were basically the in the interest of someone getting a way of prison. So they would right. say something, they didn't have to necessarily prove it, they would have their penalty right. dismissed. So and then they a, were given an incentive to accuse others falsely. Exactly. And 
Moro basically what a lot of what they what he did was that he would leak information to a corporate media and this was part of what made also Dilma fall because there was this stupid conversation in which Lula and her were talking on the phone and the conversation means nothing. Basically, she's telling him that she's sending him the contract for him to sign because he was becoming her minister. In the height of the political crisis she was facing, she made a decision to make Lula her minister because she knew he was someone that could do the politics that she wasn't able to do, like the negotiations and so on. So basically everything that she could do. So Moro tapped Dilma's and Lula's conversation and leaked it to the press and the conversation said nothing other than I'm sending the contract for you to sign so you're going to be invested as minister like a basic bureaucratic thing. But the way it was portrayed in the media, it was as if they were colluding for something like, you know how this media... Yeah, it's, <laughs> they, it's just a mystique, it, you know? like it's wiretapped. It's If it's wiretapped, it's got to be secret and conspiratorial evidence. Exactly, but that's one example. Like he did that often. Like he would leak things to the press, and especially to Global, which is major TV channel. And that became very known on the way he operated and the way the car wash operated in general as well. And a lot of that came to public last year when he was already, he had already left the federal judge position to become a minister of justice to Bolsonaro because he took office with Bolsonaro in the beginning of last year. And by the middle of last year, U.S. Uh, American journalist Glenn Greenwald, that I'm sure you all know because of Snowden's leak, He's based in Brazil. He's been living in Brazil for a long time. He's married to a Brazilian politician. And Glenn's media site, The Intercept, basically received a leak from a whistleblower that showed the exchange of conversation between Sérgio Moro, the federal judge, and the prosecutor of the car wash, showing they were colluding. Basically, they were exchanging Strategy. So you imagine that the judge that was supposed to judge <laughs> yeah. what Lula's destiny would be was basically discussing with the prosecutor what he would do and even at several times directing what the strategy should be, clearly leaning against Lula in everything he would say, like they would be celebrating things over WhatsApp and so on. So Moro kind of became in this whole mediatic car wash operation, he became kind of the hero of the anti-corruption quest in Brazil, even though he, it was completely directed towards the left and not the right at all. But by kind that point, by the point that it all emerged, the evidence all emerged, I guess the media landscape was so polarized that nobody who's inclined towards Bolsonaro and Moro and Temer and so on is going to take what Greenwald publishes seriously. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, of course, there are some people that they, that, that kind of tainted a bit the process, the, the operation. I mean, it showed that there was no really legal due process. And there is a lot of people that kind of took that as a way to say, okay, there is something here. Because the imprisonment of Lula is something that made the, the Brazilian justice system very like a target to attack. So it did it did abroad. discredit it did discredit the justice system to some degree. Yeah, because of the car wash operation but also because of spe- specifically because of Lula's imprisonment because it's so clear that there is no evidence to put him in prison 
and his imprisonment was really a tactic for him not to compete in the elections against Bolsonaro. He was going to win the election. All the polls were favorable to him, and he was going to win in the first round, like he wouldn't even need to go to the next round. So why do the effort to take Dilma out in a coup that was... That Lula, to, to hand the election to Lula, yeah, that was... that wouldn't... Exactly. So like his imprisonment was necessary in part of this process, but still they know that this led to a lot of discredit of Brazilian justice system abroad. There are several important jurists everywhere that have signed petitions against it, like... It's very clear, no, that the process is... So is the Brazilian justice system permanently tainted by this? Like, is there any way to come back from this, do you think? Well, let's see. I hope so. I mean, it's hard. This is like a very hard to predict. But one of the, the things that we really lost in this whole process that started with the coup and then the imprisonment of Lula and the election of Bolsonaro, the way all these things were happening was that institutions in general in Brazil became less respectable and the whole system of who controls whom, you know, like the division of powers and the system of control is really weak right now. And Bolsonaro is very much an evidence of that. He's all the time attacking Congress and the Supreme Court for not letting him do what he wants to do. And he doesn't really respect the way the political system works. And he's not doing this out of nowhere. He's doing this because this whole system was deeply discredited in the past few years and in the way everything played out. And a lot of people really feel like the political system doesn't work. People are very discredited. Like people don't really um, think politics works, you know, like they have this sense that this is for powerful people. And in some senses, this kind of helps Bolsonaro to say, I'm someone that is against this system that does not allow us to really make relevant changes. And this is for the establishment to keep doing things, even though he's someone that comes from... So they were able to portray the Workers' Party as the establishment. That's one of their biggest tricks. Because they're saying like traditional politics in general is the establishment. That's basically what they're saying. They're not saying the establishment is corporations or, you know, the establishment is these politicians that are there in power for so long. So we've heard outside of Brazil, and I mentioned this to you uh, when we were talking over email, but outside of Brazil, we heard all this stuff about how Bolsonaro, because of his bungling of the COVID crisis, has been quietly sidelined by the military. But when I told you that, you said that's not really... It's not really a thing in Brazil. It's just something people are hearing outside of it, of Brazil. Yeah, this is something that, as I told you, uh, I've started to receive all these contacts from foreign friends asking, so is, is Bolsonaro really ousted by the military in a silent coup? And then I had to look for it. Like, what are they talking about? And basically, uh, there is this one of these right-wing fake news websites in Brazil. It's for the base, low-level, high officials of the military they put this neo forward. They were saying that the high military officials that are in Bolsonaro government had ousted him in a silent agreement. And there is no like respectable media source that would back that. And also like reality doesn't show it, you know, like Bolsonaro have been doing everything he want, has been wanting since then. And I think a lot of that came about when the previous health minister was gaining a lot of political clout because he was being this 
sensitive person that was really thinking people need to be in quarantine, while Bolsonaro was against him saying, we should resume to normality because the worst is over. Mm. So there was this, like, this fight against them. And this guy was becoming like very powerful. And there was a moment in which basically the military took the scene in a media press event. And they were seeing this as a sign of control of both Bolsonaro and the health minister in which the military were starting to lead the way forward. But since then, Bolsonaro has really, I mean, there's so many other events that took place afterwards that show that he's, is there he's doing what he wants it, this is not changing but this is not to mean that the military do not have right and um, there's no need to overthrow someone who's so close to the military what's he gonna do that the military doesn't want well but that's a tricky thing because he's like so bolsonaro is someone that he's he's a military himself but he comes from the lower ranks of the military and he's very uh like his base in the military is the lower ranks of the military not the high officials. A lot of the high officials were in an awkward position when he was elected because he was elected with a discourse that is pretty much for like the military and in defense of the military dictatorship, while the armed forces have had a different way of approaching the military dictatorship era. They say that era was necessary because we had a communist threat, but we needed to go back to democracy afterwards and the military did their part and they don't want to be seen like in general, I'm talking about the highest rank of the, the armed forces. They don't want to be seen as wanting to have the military dictatorship again. And Bolsonaro is making their lives really hard because he's been <laughs> talking about this often in public and they are denying him publicly often as well. So basically he like, he makes this demonstration in front of uh, like a military place, and he says, we need to have that time again. Like he would say things that would lead to a conclusion that he wants to do a coup. Right. And then at the same day, the military would release a note saying, democracy is the, the, system, the political system we need. So I see. it's hard for them as well. They are, they are in, a, in a situation which is hard because they are within the government, but they are not in agreement with everything that Bolsonaro, like they are, for instance, in favor of quarantine politics towards COVID-19, while Bolsonaro has been out and about shaking people's hands in the streets. So it's hard. It's not so easy. I don't think his, like, his alignment with the military, especially the higher ranks, is total. And they are in a situation which is hard for them to, to deal moving forward. And this is something that because the, the vice president is a higher patent military, there is a lot of talk about the military dipping side really wanting for the moment in which they will take power in their own hands. Is there anyone on the left who's who's got a strategy for getting out of this situation or rebuilding afterwards or anything? I mean, what kind of debates are being had on the left about the system in the future right now? This is really hard because... Uh, so. The Workers' Party is a major force within the left. It's kind of the hegemonic force, but there is a lot of tension also. So you have these other parties and movements that either revolve around the Workers' Party because they want to or because they have no other choice because of what the Workers' Party represents. And the Workers' Party haven't really 
dropped the ball in terms of leading this by its own strategy. And this has been a challenge because, for instance, the whole strategy of having Lula being a candidate is not completely consensual within the left. And this is divisionist in some senses, but still it's it's the Workers' Party's right to do it. I mean, if they do have the strongest candidate, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And they have the right to do that. But in a way, I think we are in that situation in which the Workers' Party is still the strongest force within the left. And because of that, wants to control a lot of of who decides how this politics is moving forward, but at the same time does not have the hegemony that it used to have in the past. A lot of its politics is kind of old-fashioned and doesn't speak to a lot of people anymore. So it's a dilemma that we're facing, and I think we won't necessarily leave it so soon. And it's amazing to see that even with a government that is so incompetent and that has been able to unite so many forces from right and left against him, even still, we haven't really been able to come up with a strategy that is at least, if not left, at least democratic. Yeah, yeah some limit on fascism, at least. You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin, and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now back to the brief. We have so many things that are happening so fast. So first, I wanted to just get an update about this fake news investigation that's actually taking place in the court. And they're investigating Bolsonaro, right? Yeah, well, it's investigating several politicians and other people that were involved in fake news uh, dissemination. So an interesting thing is this investigation started already in March 2019. So it's not like a new thing. And it's being surrounded by a lot of polemics because it was initiated by the Supreme Court. And normally it's the public prosecutor's office who should actually initiate an investigation and not the Supreme Court. So a lot of people, and I would say I, I would agree with that, uh, see the investigation in many ways very illegal, uh, or maybe not illegal, maybe it's not the world, but it's... it's um, so like debatable. it's not normal procedure, right? Yeah, it's, it's debatable, because basically what they did was, because some Supreme Court members were victims of fake news, they initiated the investigation. So they are the victims of fake news. They are the investigators and they are the judges. So there is no separation of roles in, in this investigation. And because of that, it was questioned by the federal prosecutor at the time the investigation started and she demanded it to be filed, like uh, dismissed but they didn't accept. And then when her successor came to power, appointed by Bolsonaro, he was again questioned about it, and he said it was okay to move forward. And now he's changing his mind about it. So there is a lot of polemics around this as well, because at the beginning, it seemed it was more focused towards some press, like newspapers that had put some fake news up. But then... Now, the main leader of the investigation within the Supreme Court is actually targeting 
a lot of people that are around Bolsonaro, such as corporate men that financed his campaign through illegal means, because in Brazil, since last elections, it was forbidden for corporate financing of campaigns. And what they did was they financed fake news media, and that was their way of indirectly financing this campaign. You're not supporting the campaign, you're just supporting media that supports the Exactly. And there's, I mean, so many different traces of that. So he was outraged by that because obviously it's uh, kind of go- getting closer to his inner circle, including his sons, who are very much involved with that. So that's pretty much... So which, then, which then leads to the General Eleno making that statement, kind of warning the Supreme Court, I guess that was a week or a week and a half ago, saying there would be unpredictable consequences if this continues. Yeah, so that's that's another thing. Like, So the military has been, since 1985, pretty much, they haven't been so immersed in power as they are right now, starting from the vice president, who's a general, to several ministers. And there is accounts that say that now you have around 3,000 military officials of different ranks in all of state bureaucracy, which is unprecedented in a civil government in Brazil. But at the same time, you have the armed forces and it's general, like the director of the armed forces, all the time claiming that that's the position of military officials who are in the government, so it's their personal position and not the, the armed forces. I'm not saying this is It's not easy to separate that, of course. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about some of them are already retired. Others are still inactive. Most of the ones that are in higher ranks in the government are actually retired. But it's very intertwined because you have many of these generals were former colleagues of those that are now directing the armed forces. But it's, there is something that is pretty consistent in the sense that the higher ranks of active military in the armed forces have been very consistent in saying that they don't want a military coup and that it's the choice of military officials to be there and, and be part of the government. It's actually created some sort of a dilemma for the, the armed forces in a way because they have gone a long way since the end of the military dictatorship to think themselves as restricting to what is supposed to be their role, like the defense of the country, right? Obviously, this is this hasn't been necessarily like this all the time. The weaker the government, the more it resorts to having military in their ministries. It happened in different governments. Tamer is a major example of that. So he, he had a military just ministry. Before, just before Bolsonaro. Exactly. So this is a trend that is, has been deepening. So in a way, the presence of military within the Bolsonaro government is also a sign of the weakness of his government. He's relying on the face of the military within society, which is a, a face of stability, so to speak. Now, polls indicate the majority of Brazilians wouldn't be in favor of like a military intervention or anything like that. But then you have this minority, which is very loud, <laughs> protesting in the street and using all these fascist symbols and calling for military intervention. And they have been 
very strong in showing, I don't know, like signs of the past, <laughs> resurrecting, right? And then the media, their own media amplifies it to make them look bigger than they are, I suppose. But I think the main question that we have now with General Eleno's claims is, there is, of course, this is something like we're in a in the forecast business now, because honestly, yeah, right. so many of the things so we have said that would never happen, happened in Brazil in the past few years that I'm not going to be saying anything is set in stone. But generally, signs show that the higher ranks of the military who are now in control of the armed forces are not very keen on having a military coup. They know the cost of that for the armed forces, and they have been very consistent in saying that. Now, the armed forces is a very opaque uh, institution. You don't really know the correlation of power inside and the differences within. And then you also have the military police, which is kind of an inheritance we have of dictatorship. So basically, the police that is in the street is, is military as well. It's not as in other countries where you have a civil police only. You have here a civil police, but you also have a military police in the streets. And... One thing we, we are sure is that in the lower ranks of the armed forces, but especially within the military police, the support to Bolsonaro is very high. And there has been indication that they would go unsubordinate to the higher ranks if needed. It doesn't mean that will necessarily happen, but I think that's the biggest fear we have because he has been relying on that and the part of the poli the military police that are also engaged with militias, like control of territories in uh -huh. cities like Rio and drug dealing, etc. So I would say this is kind of what scares us most. On the other hand, speaking of Bolsonaro's support, I saw this video uh, last week uh, where he tried to get a hot dog and was kind of shouted out of town. And there have been demonstrations against Bolsonaro too, right? So... What's happening on that side of things? Yeah, that's finally some sign of reaction, <laughs> even though I would say it's still uh, small considering what we're going through. But basically, there is like a, a group of armed people that are protesting and camped in Brasilia, and they are holding these fascist signs. And people have been really like worried about that. I mean, they know there is, they are few, but still... They're there and they keep being there, even though what they, they're doing is like they're using all these Nazi and fascist symbols. And it's really scary that this can happen in light of day, in the light of day. Uh, and there is like a progressive forces in Brazil are very divided in terms of which political party will be leading and, and social movements haven't been able to really come together in a convergence for democracy or against Bolsonaro. But I feel recent, like this week, the signs of the open fascism has been so strong that reactions are starting to really form in different ways, like e either sign-on letters that are spreading around of people from diff like different parts of the political spectrum, from center-right to the left, signing, saying this is about saving democracy to this protest in the streets that curiously has been led very much by soccer fans. This is very interesting because some of some soccer fan base have a tradition of anti-fascism oh. uh, since the military dictatorship. And 
the leaders of these protests in different cities were the connection of different like different teams coming together. So these are teams that are fighting against each other when it comes to soccer, but they are coming together for anti-fascist protests. So they're basically like being like human control for the fascists not to be able to do oh. the protests they they want to do. And it's been very interesting because you see the interviews they have been doing with the leaders of these protests like yesterday. Basically, they were saying since the political parties and the movements haven't been able to really come together as strong as they should, we didn't want to stay home and wait for this to grow. And this is more important than quarantine because there is always this polemics also because they are there with their with masks, masks in their faces. People are supposed to stay at home. But at the same time, they were connecting the anti-fascist protests with the need for the poor to have support to keep staying at home. Right. And that was really interesting for me because they were bringing together a lot of dimensions of what is wrong with this country right now. And in Rio, for mm -hmm. instance, this was very connected to the execution of people in favela by military operations. And, and I'm talking about execution of a child within, like inside their home, you know? Oh my God. Uh, so all of these things that are happening in the U.S. right now, I think resonate a lot in Rio as well. Rio has a very strong movement that has parallels with Black Lives Matter because uh, police violence is very much directed towards, of course, Black youth in the favelas. And mm -hmm. I think they were kind of motivated by seeing what they saw in the U.S. and then all the things that are happening at the same time here. So this is also a sign of hope, I feel. Like, I think people are, are starting to see that, okay, we have to be in quarantine, but enough is enough. And they're calling themselves anti-fascist, which uh, could lead to Trump declaring them a terrorist organization, I guess. Yeah, and, and Bolsonaro <laughs> has been, yeah, of course, and, and the Bolsonaro as well, right? I mean, he's been uh, emulating yeah. Trump so much. It's just, it's so shameful. Yeah. I don't know. There is no <laughs> sign of self-respect <laughs> in, in this wow. government anymore. Uh, Diana, thank you so much for joining well, us. Thank you for the invitation. I hope it was helpful to understand a bit yeah. this landscape that we are ourselves having difficult to understand. Oh my goodness. Diana's excellent. That's a great interview, Justin. I think our fascism tour is going to have to continue next week when we look into America in Flames. Yeah. And, uh, yes. and I mean, America in Flames <laughs> isn't just the story of fascism, right? Just like Diana said, there was these, these soccer fans that are uh, rising up against fascism. That's what this America in Flames is too, right? It's Ultimately, it's about the fight against fascism. Exactly. Which is great. We didn't really have that vibe when we were doing India. <laughs> but but it's, <laughs> maybe it's the beginning of something bigger. Let's hope. All right, guys, stay safe. Okay. Another week. <laughs> That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.